hear from God's word. With your forbearance, I'd like to stand here. You say, walk away. I don't usually. Usually. It is good to be here. And I appreciate the invitation of the Reverend here to have me speak. It's the first time I've actually spoken for you. Um, I know a few years ago Mike had approached me, but I was at obligations teaching at the National Heights up in Charleston and uh, wasn't able to. And uh, had numerous opportunities to hear Sam. You'll uh, hear him this afternoon at, the, at 2 o'clock. Um, but it's my first time speaking before you. And so I appreciate the invitation and appreciate being here. Greetings from Charleston. Uh, we're only an hour and 45 minutes apart, uh, but uh, it's always a great honor to, to be here and to see everyone. I get such great encouragement from you and the work that you're doing here. Um, this morning we're going to be looking at the notion of God is love. Oh, oh. A few years ago at, in Charleston we did a study of the nature of God and we revisited that um, in, a, in a separate study that we, can, we do on Saturday mornings. And it's really good getting into the, the, the nature, the character, the attributes of the God that we serve. And I want to spend some time today specifically looking at God is love. Turn to what the first John chapter four. And that's going to be kind of the we're going to define our terms. Um, and this is probably the most important attribute of our Lord and as far as his character goes because it is the foundation that everything else builds on. And if you would, first John chapter four and we'll begin reading in verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God had has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. It is His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. We love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He, he has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he of God. For we have come to know and to believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So we have this, this great definition here. Love originates in God and it proceeds from him. Um, I know that's what one commentator said that. The Bible makes the unique revelation that God in His very nature and essence is love. This read in this passage. Christianity being the only religion thus to present the supreme being. God not only loves, He is love. In this supreme attribute, all the other attributes are harmonized. This is the basis for who God is. And he continues that in response to man's sin caused misery and suffering, love takes the form of mercy. In response to man's persistence in sin, it shows itself as patience. And in response to the sinner's condemnation and lostness, it becomes forgiving grace. So it's important to note how, how God's love manifests itself to us. First, 
we have man's sin. And where there is sin, God has extended his mercy, his lenience towards us. In response to man's persistence in sin, God shows patience, endurance, perseverance, long-suffering towards us. And then there's his grace. And grace makes up that shortfall between our intentions and our follow We don't intend to sin, but we do. It's God's grace that fills in that gap, if you will. I like to joke that, that, that it's like when, when we in the South say, bless your heart, you meant well. It's not usually a compliment. Well, grace really is saying that in me, it has a compliment. God knows our intentions, and that's where grace comes in. Of course, define love, the dictionary, the strong, complex emotion or feeling causing to appreciate, delight in, and crave the presence or possession of another, and to please and promote the welfare of another, devoted affection or attachment. Love, whether used for God or man, is an earnest and anxious desire for and an active and beneficent interest in the well-being of the one love. And really, that's the heart if you will, of what love is. It is putting the other's well-being above your own. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 13. The great passage on, on love that we, we hear so often. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And I love how the Spirit through Paul defines what love is. And again, He's putting the well-being of the other before ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not hurt. Does not act unbecoming. Does not seek its own. Does not provoke. Does not take into account the wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. You read through that and you see putting the other one first, not ourselves. And we need to think about how wonderful it is that God is love. You read in 1 John 4, verse 16, um, that, that great wonderful news that God is love. For well, what? Let's think about this for a moment. God is eternal. Man is not. Not this physical creation, not this physical body that we have. And God does not love. But He's not concerned for man who is a creature of time. We're a created being who is not existing eternally, of course. And so without God's love, we have no real or lasting hope. God is all-powerful. But if God did not love man, the power of God simply becomes a, a terror to us. Think about that for a moment. Without God's love, His almighty power is against us. God is holy. But if God does not love us, then the holiness of God must repel us, must turn us away because we are unholy because of our sin. Because we have fallen short. God is just. But man, of course, is sin. 
And unless God has that compassion, that love, then there's only fear in the heart of man when he thinks about the holiness of God and our own sinfulness and how we can never bridge that, that gulf, that divide between his holiness and our unholiness because of our sin. So without the truth that God is love, the other attributes about God <coughs> would work for our destruction, for our condemnation. But that moment, it would actually work against us without His love. Because without love, all His other attributes are negative for us. It's frightening to think about. God's omnipresence is being everywhere would not comfort us but would absolutely terrify us because there would be no place to escape. Tell me if you would to Psalm 139. This great passage that we read and take comfort in because God knows us individually. I want you to look at it from two perspectives. We're going to read through most of this. But the first I want you to think about is with God's love and then without God's love. Beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My brain was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully brought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me. What is yet? There was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I should count them. They would outnumber the sin. When I await, I am still with you. Seek down verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if they're being hurtful away and meet me in the everlasting love. You read through that, and understanding God's love for us, this is incredibly comforting. God knows me individually. He takes care of me. He knows me better than I know myself because He made me. Strip God's love away from me. And this is absolutely frightening. Where can I go to escape? You're everywhere around me. I can't get away from you. This would be the textbook definition of stalking. Where could we go to get away from God without His love? Without His love, this would be absolutely beyond our comprehension terrifying. This would be the worst horror movie of all time. 
Turn if you would to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. And I want us to note the context of this. So many of the passages that we're going to be looking at have to deal with or that are set in the context of just before the crucifixion. Matthew chapter 2, 22, this is just shortly before Jesus would be, would be crucified, before he goes to the cross, that great redemptive work of love. And the question is asked in verse 34 and following. Um, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. On these two depend the whole law and the prophets. Just as love, our love for God, our love for our neighbor, for our fellow man, is the basis for the law, love is the basis for God's activity. Without his seeking our well-being and putting our well-being first, we have no hope. We have no ability for salvation. So we, we need to be grateful that that's the God that we serve and not the, the gods of man's mind, the, the idols. And, and you, you see all of this throughout various cultures, the gods that they have set up. To be perfectly honest, it's a good thing that I'm not God. I would not be patient or loving and merciful as he is. You wrong me, I'm going to zap you. That's human nature. And man's idols are based off of man's human nature. We're good at that. We, we are very good at creating God in our own image rather than understanding that we were created in God's image. It's with it, the human mind works. We need to be grateful. That is the Lord that we serve. We look at God's love for us. The most famous verse in Scripture, John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that describes, it conveys that ultimate expression of God's love. But God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. that whoever will believe in him should not perish, should not die, but rather have everlasting life. Think about this for a moment. Because of God's great love for us, he's the one that took the initiative in bringing us back. He's the one that started the process. His plan involves sending His only begotten Son to die on that cruel 
And if you know anything about Roman crucifixion, they were good at it. They were really good at making it last. The entire purpose of that was to break somebody's will. Yes, death was a nice side benefit to that, but really it was about breaking their will, breaking their spirit. That, that those watching would never go against Rome. Remember what the top capital con was. What was the charge that, that Jesus was officially executed for? Making insurrection against Rome. That was the charge they got to stick. You weren't going to defy Rome. That's the love that our God has for us. That he willingly had His Son go through that for us, for me. He loved His beloved Son. We see that in Matthew three seventeen, the baptism of Jesus, laid before the foundation of the world. In John seventeen, the prayer in the garden. But only the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blood, 1 Peter 1 and 19, could atone for man's sins. And he did this for us when there was absolutely no earthly reason to do so. Turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. And we want to begin reading in verse 6. And every so often you, you read through passages and, and you you kind of realize the, the, the importance of what is being conveyed here. It really takes me in particular when I read through Romans 5 and begin reading in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Perhaps for the good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. How many of us could, would, would be willing to die for someone else? <laughs> Probably not going to be too many takers on that. It's going to think, well, who is that person? I mean, yeah, I guess if you pay me enough, okay, I mean, you've got professional bodyguards and things like that, they'll, they'll take a bullet, but there's a place involved with that. For a good man, maybe. Um, for somebody out on the street, I'm busy that day, you know? That's the way that, that we think. But look what God did for us. While we were still enemies. How many of us have enemies? Well, not too many. Most of us are probably decent enough, people likable enough, but we don't have real enemies. We may have people disagree with or something like that, but we don't have enemies. We don't have people actively looking to kill me. If you, if you have enemies, don't tell me. I don't know. We were enemies of God because of our sin. God took the initiative out of His love for us to bring us back. That's the whole point of reconciliation. That's the idea that is, that is talked about there in verse 11. 
reconciliation, being brought back. We were estranged from God because of our sin, but God loved us enough that He made the overtures to bring us back. Out of His own love for us. And we need to think about how unquestionable God's love is for us. How can we doubt about God? Do you really love Him? There was no one to stop God from sacrificing His Son for us. Remember the the, the great example, the, the type in Genesis 22, where, where Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac. Does He go through that? Obviously not. An angel stops Him from doing so. There was no angel that stopped God the Father from sacrificing his own son for us. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as that sacrifice. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love because He laid down His life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. In John 15.13 Again, context, this is, the, this is during the Passover meal right before the events leading to the crucifixion. What are they talking about? Love. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. John 15, 13. And God's love for sinful men. We stop and think just how wonderful and how great his love is for us, that he loves corrupt, rebellious, sinful human beings. Another one commentator said, in, in respect of agape and use of God, expresses the deep and constant love and interest of a perfect being towards entirely unworthy objects, producing and fostering a reverential love in them towards the giver, and a practical love toward those who are partakers of the same and a desire to help others to seek the giver. It is easy and natural for us to love those that are kind and sweet and respectful and such. But it is extremely difficult to love people who aren't, who are our enemies. And we have to be very careful when we use the word natural. Because natural is not a good word for the Christian to use. That is at odds with us being of the Spirit. Natural is what leads us to hell. It is what leads us to destruction. It's the Spirit that leads us to life. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. That great section on loving one's enemies in the context of the Sermon on the Mount is of a couple of things. It is the character of those who are going to be in the kingdom, but it's really the textbook definition, if you will, will, of repentance, of what it means to align our will with that of the Father. Turn turn there, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we'll pick up our reading in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say, you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the, on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those 
a question that's asked on, on a job application. Have you ever been convicted of a crime? When there's a pardon, the answer is no. Because that's gone. Well, the same thing with us when we are pardoned. When we love someone, we want to forgive them so that the hurt feelings are replaced with feelings of affection. And forgiveness is as much for the forgiver as it is for the forgiving. And because of his love for us, God knows and supplies our needs. He gives good things to those who ask. He's the source of every good and perfect gift. He calls us his children. So what is our response to his love? Well, we must love God. Because remember, God loved us first. So whatever we're doing is in response to what he has already done. Remember what Jesus, when Jesus would ask the question, what's the first commandment? What is the foremost commandment? What is the commandment? What's his response? Love God. With all your heart and all your soul and so on and so forth. And then, the second, following that up with loving your neighbor. Just as love is the highest expression of God and his relation to mankind, so it must be the highest expression of man's relation to his maker and to his fellow man. We must love God more than any person, any possession, in our own lives. Pretty simple when you think about it. We love God above anything else. Well, how do we prove our love? Turn to John chapter 14. And again, the setting here is the conversation surrounding the Passover meal just before the crucifixion. In John chapter 14, in verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's get down to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not a scary, said to him, Lord, what thing has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So how do we show our love for God? Keeping his command, keeping his, his instructions as he has given. Actions always speak louder than words. We can say we love, but if we don't follow through, if we don't do, then do we really love? We must also love our brethren. In 1 John 4, the last couple of verses, verse 20 and 21, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's alive. But he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment we have for him, we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And we show our love for God by loving his children. Matthew 25, taking care of those in need and so on and so forth. And the word of God teaches us to have that sincere love of the brother. That sincere love. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Going back to John 13. What's the instruction? Verses 34 and 35. We are showed to others that we are his disciples by loving one another to the same degree that he loves us. And how much did God love us? How much did Jesus love us? He was willing to die for us. 
that's the love we're called to have as Christians. And we must love our neighbor. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, we're not going to harm him. We're going to treat him as we would want to be treated. We're going to follow the golden rule. Think about that for a moment. The basis of the laws of prophets is what? God is our love for God, our love for our neighbor. Notice, we don't fit into the equation. It is always thinking about God and other people. We have to think about ourselves when it comes to our love. That's that's a hard one to get past sometimes. I don't enter the equation. I love God, I love my neighbor. I love other people. I do that, everything's taken care of. We love our enemies. The great example of loving our enemies, go back to Romans 5. When we were still enemies, Christ died for us. When Jesus says to love your enemies, He knows what He's talking about. Because He did. Do we? The greatest of these is love. That's how that great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. If, our, if we're doing things for the Lord and we're not doing them out of love, it doesn't do us looking good. All we're doing is just going through the motions. We're pretending, if you will. All that we do must be done with love. Again, love of God, love of man. On this hangs, on this depends the law and the prophets. It's the same as in the Old Testament, same as in the New Testament. When we seek to have the kind of love that God has, if we have the love that we're supposed to, God is patient, long-suffering, merciful, gracious, all of this towards us. It all stems from His love for us. So what do we take from this? Well, if you're not doing that, you need to repent. You need to align your will with the Father. You need to have the same kind of love that God has for us and He has for you. That's what repentance is. It is that change of mindset that what He wants is what I want. First and foremost, you've got to do that. If you've already done so, but never put Christ on baptism, you need to do that. Because without that, you're not obeying His command. You're not obeying His instructions. As you've been told. You need to make that change in your life. You need to repent. You need to do so publicly. Or you need to be baptized for that remission of sins, for that pardon. Who encourages you to come to the same sin song that we select?